0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tinellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and Enjoy. From award-winning, best-selling author Sarah Bailey comes a brand-new, nail-biting thriller. The Housemates, published by Ellen and Unwin, is Sarah's fourth book and her first standalone novel. A gritty urban crime novel, The Housemates introduces us to Olive Groves, a Melbourne-based journalist who becomes obsessed by a case dubbed The Housemate Homicide, involving three housemates, one murdered, another missing, and one accused of murder. Nine years later, the missing housemate turns up dead and Olive is catapulted back into the case along with an unlikely partner in podcaster, Cooper Ning. Listeners, this was one heck of a thrilling read, and I am so excited to welcome Sarah to the podcast today. Hi, Sarah. Hello,
1: how are you? I'm
0: really well. Wow, as I said before we started recording, this book was fantastic. It had it all, red herrings and more twists and turns than a fun park roller coaster. I loved it. Tell me, Sarah, where did the idea for this story come from? Was there a particular spark of inspiration for it? Yeah, there was a couple of
1: sparks, um, which was which was helpful, I think. But I, I had this uh, sort of concept in my head for a little while about a dinner party gone wrong. Um, and I just kept thinking, I think in my mind, the ambition was sort of a locked room mystery, uh, someone ending up dead at the end of a nice social night, uh, and then kind of trying to work out what happened. Um, and I, I didn't write anything down, but I was sort of playing around with that idea in my head for quite a long time. And I just couldn't make it work. I think um, I get bored with my own ideas sometimes. And that's a bit of, an a, I guess, a cue for me to go, there's something not working about this particular concept. So, I sort of parked that and then I had this other idea that was um, bothering me, which was sort of centred around a deceased detective and then someone sort of in her periphery picking up in her footsteps a few years later and I guess almost retracing her detective work. Um, And I really liked that kind of idea, but I couldn't work out how to make more of that concept. And so I guess in the end I sort of mashed the two things together um, and I think it gave both of them a bit more sort of um, meat on the bones. And yeah, I guess I've ended up with a a story that does involve someone uh, who is murdered um, as a result of sort of a dinner party gone wrong. And then there's a a journalist that ends up working on that story and she's retracing the steps of a deceased detective who happens to be the woman that her now fiance used to be married to. So there's a little bit of a Rebecca-esque vibe to that relationship that she has with the dead cop as well. Yeah, hopefully it all it all works, but that was kind of the whistle stop tour version of how it all came to be.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, as I said, I absolutely loved it. More to the point, I loved Ollie. I thought she was a fascinating character she had so many different layers and aspects to her personality that I thought made her relatable on a number of levels. I mean, she was a professional woman dedicated to her work and chasing personal happiness at the same time, but she's not sure how well those two sides of her life can come together. And I felt like she was caught between two worlds in many respects. So I wondered if you could tell me about your inspiration for Ollie and how you managed to get inside her head.
1: Yeah. I mean, Ollie, similar to my other leading lady protagonist is a restless person and I think it it sort of I guess is a reason why a lot of protagonists are restless is that they they sort of want more out of their circumstance and that that makes for good fiction so I'm not surprised that that tension kind of exists in a lot of strong uh, character leads but with Ollie in particular she's successful you know, generally speaking, but she's not quite scaled the heights that perhaps she might have hoped she would from a career point of view and then she's finally, finally got this amazing relationship and this amazing man that she has always hankered after Mm. and that's maybe not quite as satisfying as she'd hoped it would be either. So I think with Ollie a lot of it's to do with a sense of what, what happens now, like what happens when you sort of have what you kind of always wanted but it's not kind of enough. Uh, and then she's obviously got the the layered um, kind of complexity of being in an industry that is is almost just by the way it's progressing, challenging her modernity and her relevance on a day-to-day basis. So she's at the peak of her job. She's almost 40. She's She should be kind of, I guess, feeling quite confident about her ability. But the new technology, the millennials that are hitting um, the workplace that she's in are all really putting a big question mark over that for her. So yeah, she's got lots going on. And then obviously a murder to sort of solve on the side. So she's busy.
0: Indeed she is. (laughs) So picking up a little bit on this tension between the old world and the new, if I can put it that way, Ollie's antithesis in this book is her young partner, Cooper Ng. Um, He's everything she's not. And more importantly, he represents, as I said, that new world order, the new digital platforms for journalism compared with Ollie's traditional journalism. She's not persuaded by this shift in thinking is she
1: no and I think the reason why is that if if she succumbs to acknowledging that there's a better easier uh kind of more slapdash way of doing her job then what does that mean for all of the time that she's invested in being a a proper journalist as she sort of would refer to it as and I I think I mean I'm quite obsessed with this conundrum because I think it's really really interesting That we've ended up in a world that questions facts, that says that people that aren't experts in a certain field seem to have very strong opinions about certain fields, and then more sort of on a technology level, what do we do when experience isn't the most important thing anymore? If you know how to do something and you're really familiar with a certain technology or a software program, you can actually be more valuable than someone that's worked in a field for 20 years. So it's been i think it's just it's confused the world of work in a way that perhaps it hasn't been confused before there was there, there used to be just such clear rites of passage and clear tenure based milestones that you would achieve and tick off and there is still that layer of competence and experience but there's also just this in, interesting added element which is capability and skills and know-how and attitude and access and I guess in um, my career in advertising, I see that every day. And I think definitely journalism is another industry that sort of doesn't quite know what to do with all of these different skill sets and how you reward, recognise, and respect the old alongside the new. I just, it's
0: really interesting, I think. Yeah, and you've explored it so brilliantly in this book, I thought. I don't know that it's necessarily resolved does certainly give us food for thought. Sarah, you also touched on so many dark themes and issues in this book, and it's difficult to speak about them, I think, without giving away spoilers. But from a plotting point of view, and I think I mentioned this before we started recording, how difficult was it for you to tie in all the different threads of this story together? Because there's a lot going on.
1: Yes. It, I always find it difficult to resolve all of the annoying plot points that I've <laughs> laid out um, and that is what I call second part of the draft problem because I don't plot anything uh, out very very well as you know uh, like in an organized synopsis or a sort of a, a plot plan way. Um, I did have to write a synopsis for this book just because I sort of needed to present a pitch to the publisher but, a lot of that did go out the window. So, I mean, I knew what the book was going to be about and I sort of had an end goal in mind, but a lot of what happened between those two bookends was very unclear even to me. And I mean, I've just, the way that I write is very clearly now for me, not worth fighting. So (laughs) it's about writing. And then the more that I write, the more I seem to generate what happens next. And it kind of happens quite organically. Which is sort of annoying because it's not very organized, but uh, you know, it, as long as it gets done, I guess that's the main thing. And I did have to tie a lot of things together in this book, probably more than I perhaps realized I'd set out to have to resolve. But I think there's a bit of a momentum that kicks in. Um, in that last kind of quarter and in, and I find it sounds silly probably but I almost start writing faster because I'm kind of writing as much as the pace of the book feels like it's fast, it's me writing fast too. Um, so it's kind of quite fun I think because you're kind of almost thinking more quickly than you can type. And, yeah, I, I did, you know, obviously do some editing as well and, and make sure things were perhaps a bit more neatly um, tied together than they were in my original draft. But yeah, I liked that there was a few different subplots and layers to this book and obviously wanting to avoid spoilers as well. But I think one thing I was very keen to explore from a crime point of view was how you can be involved in a crime, but not physically doing something, I guess, that's horrible yourself, which I think is happening more and more these days. You can sort of be crime adjacent, or you're almost in like the supply chain of crime. So you can kind of convince yourself that you're not actually a horrible person doing horrible things. Mm. And I find that really interesting, because I think we would all probably agree that someone stabbing someone is more kind of brutal and horrible than someone pressing a button that deploys something that hurts somebody. Mm. So even I think as an audience, we can sort of separate those two things as being on a scale of awful and less awful but I guess the end result is still awful and I, I, I find that quite interesting as well so I think the book does explore that relationship with doing something bad and and how involved you are even if you're not you know pulling the, the trigger I guess.
0: Yeah, 100%. It was, it was absolutely fascinating on that level. And I guess that brings me to just chat with you briefly about the structure of this book. So we've actually got two points of view. We've got Ollie, our main protagonist in the present tense, but also in the past, I guess. And then we've also got the point of view of one of the housemates, the one that was accused of murder. So tell me how you came to that decision to, to split the narrative in that way.
1: It wasn't very strategic, to be <laughs> honest, but I think it changed quite a bit because I'm pretty sure that in the first, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 words that I wrote, it was all just from Ollie's perspective. And I do chop and change things a lot as I'm writing. So I'd love to say that it was, you know, all planned out, but it it absolutely is never that case. So I think it just got to a point where you can't, I guess, if you stick with one person, which is a lot of what I've done in the past, most of the Gemma books are in just one um, point of view and perspective. It's great from the perspective of getting really deep into someone's head and psyche, but you do miss the ability to see things from different points of view. You can't see different timelines necessarily. So I I think I just decided that introducing that element would, A, create a bit more tension because it would become then clear to the audience that there was things that Ollie didn't know that she would hopefully eventually find out but you weren't sure, so, they were sort of, I guess, kept slightly more in the know in some ways than Ollie was, which I think is always an interesting kind of power dynamic to play with. And I think there's quite a lot of different points of view on whether or not that's good or bad. But I, I personally quite like introducing, I suppose, the ability for a reader to kind of go, hang on a minute, where's that going to kind of ladder to? So, yeah, I think writing in uh, Alex's voice just meant that the housemates also had a bit more of a presence in the story. They weren't just news headlines, they were actually people as well. You got a sort of sense of how they got into the situation they got into, which I think was important because if you had have had that from Ollie's point of view, it would always have been done in like more of an editorial way. So yeah, I think it just made them feel a bit more human, which was important to me. And it was fun. I think it broke up the book a little bit potentially. Yeah, I I think it worked in the end. But um, yeah, you never kind of know if something like that is going to work until the end. So rewriting can often be (laughs) a result of that kind of experiment.
0: And I think, Sarah, what you highlighted exceptionally well in this book was how fast-paced modern journalism is, how demanding and voracious the public's appetite is for news and news stories and the evolving ways that news is delivered. But for me, I guess it also spotlighted yet again the importance of investigative journalism and its increasingly valuable place in uncovering systemic or organised crime. Is that something you were conscious of while writing this story?
1: Well, I'm obsessed with journalists, (laughs) so I guess that helped. I really, really, well, I guess I have... I have a lot of respect for the industry when the industry, I think, is behaving in a very positive and important way. I think some journalism can be terrible. So, you know, there's obviously a scale on which it exists, but I, I love the idea of being a journalist. And I always, I mean, I definitely was interested in that at one point in my life. And I, I just find that whole profession so fascinating because it's, it's so um, fluid and loose There's not really an actual roadmap for a journalist. It's so self-steering. And there's structures, obviously, that have been built around the industry, like deadlines and Mm. the paper comes out every day and news websites, you know, exist. But in terms of kind of the ability to, I suppose, wake up and go, right, this is something that I think is important to investigate, it is sort of fascinating to me, that freedom Um, But, yeah, I I really think that over the last few years there's been some incredible examples of important journalism where people have really taken on an issue and, you know, uncovered incredibly sometimes heinous things but also just, I think, really holding big business and government to account. So I I do just still believe it's so important. And, uh, yeah, I think we get a bit caught up in the news cycle and the relentlessness of it is probably getting in the way sometimes I think of good journalism being done but I also guess I feel lucky to live in a climate where we have so much access to information and you know generally speaking I think most journalists are really noble in their quest to deliver the right information to people so yeah I I guess I'll always find that world fascinating and it was it was really fun to be able to explore it through fiction.
0: To that end, what research did you do to bring this story to the page? So, I
1: mean, I watch a lot of TV shows about journalists because they are my favorite. So I definitely have done a lot of TV desk research myself. And I did um, do some work experience when I was at university in journalism field. So I was spent some time at the paper and also at a TV news network. So I've had a little bit of just Existing in those environments and sort of seeing how it all plays out. But that was obviously a little bit out of date. So I did befriend a journalist who let me tag along to a court case with him and sort of just see how that all played out. And then once I found out that I could go to court cases by myself and I didn't have to get permission from anybody, I did go to a few different hearings and sessions that were really helpful for my story in particular. So that was really that was really worthwhile, I think. And then just speaking to a couple of journalists about sort of their their standard day and how that they kind of organize their time, how the hierarchy works, and also talking to them about the technology onslaught and I guess that whole piece that that Ollie's navigating, how do people that are sort of, I guess, 20 years deep into a profession navigate that? new new sort of technology, new media, and the, just the expectations, I guess, from the audience. So yeah, it was really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Do you think, like Ollie, real-life journalists despair at the demise of print journalism, or is it acceptance of the inevitable?
1: I think it's both. I think when this book was set, because it's sort of set in 2015, it was a really sort of pivotal moment in time where people were in despair, I think, quite a bit. I think maybe there's a bit more of an acceptance now that that is the way it's going to be. Um, But And and I guess there's been a bit of a wrestle around, you know, it's still important, it still exists, but we've managed, it kind of coexists with all of these other new channels and platforms. So maybe there's been a bit of peace made with that, I think. But I think it's been sad. I think people have mourned the industry as they knew it. And I mean, that's in so many industries, but, it, you know, it was a simpler time. And a few people I spoke to who were perhaps a bit older, they can remember when there was just, you know, one edition of the paper, you didn't have the internet, you weren't sort of struggling to race against time every single day. And it was a bit neater and more controlled. Like I said, my industry is kind of the same, I think. But you know, with with sort of progress comes positives, but also negatives. I think there is definitely a fair amount of negatives in journalism that is a result of the internet and um, self-publishing and uh, lots of other things. But there's also, of course, some incredible opportunities that that's brought people to. So I think you just have to realize that the only you know constant is is change, and once you kind of embrace that. that's just it's how you react and respond to making the most of it I guess that's important and I think the good journalists have done that really well.
0: I think it's fair to say that the deeper Ollie and Cooper dive into this cold case, the more Ollie has to confront her own past traumas and insecurities. But not only is Ollie a principal journalist, but she's strong enough and has enough self-awareness to understand that she needs to find happiness too. Something that I admired about her immensely. And we touched a little bit on this earlier. So I wanted to know how do you walk that line of making your female protagonist flawed and damaged, but self-aware enough to make the choices that write for her?
1: I, I don't think about it too much when I'm first drafting it I think that kind of analysis comes when you're editing so that's good I think because if you write without too much awareness I think you tend to write characters that are quite real and genuine and then you can kind of go back and I guess correct anything that maybe doesn't marry up or inconsistencies in behavior and things like that uh, I think with Ollie and same with my other character, Gemma, it is it is a fine line because you don't want the audience to sort of just completely give up on them or to get real. I mean, people get really angry with my character, Gemma, that that's for sure. But I think anger's fine as long as there is still some investment in outcome. And I think that's sort of what you're trying to go for. I mean, I don't like everybody either and that's fine, but I think you can still be invested in someone's journey without having to like really, really like them. So likability is not very important to me, but I think sort of interest and belief and understanding is probably the things that I think you want to sort of aim for. And the self-awareness is important because that makes the reader realise that there is going to be, there's layers to this person. They're not, you know, really one-dimensional um they have some self-belief and some ability to control their destiny and then that's when I guess the curiosity kicks in because you're like well I want to now I want to know what they're going to do because they're in a bit of a conundrum they're clearly thinking about their options and now I want to know what's going to happen so that sounds like I think about it a lot and I probably don't but (laughs) I think that's what you sort of end up with if you create characters that are as real as possible and yeah, as you said, I said, Ollie's got a lot of past trauma and lots of things that she's dealing with. So it's important to work out how she would then approach certain things that she's confronted with as an adult, because it's obviously always going to be there.
0: So Sarah, as I mentioned earlier, this is your first standalone novel with a different female protagonist. Did you find that transition difficult?
1: I found it. Fine. I think it was it, like I was keen to do something new and try something new, and I think I had originally wondered if Gemma could be in this story, and then I kind of quickly dismissed that idea because I knew it didn't didn't really work with for a whole bunch of reasons. It didn't really work. So no, I didn't find it like I didn't find it hard, but it was just different. And I think I think it did take me a little while to get going. I probably was a bit slower to sort of get into the right gear because it felt a bit. It was not it wasn't like I'd lost my confidence, but I just wasn't quite sure if it was really working for a while. And then once I sort of, I think, got to a critical mass of words, I, I, I sort of felt like that it was coming together and it was different enough and it felt different enough. And then I, I think I kicked back into the normal, you know, mode that I work in. So, yeah, it was a good challenge, I think. I'm glad I've, you know, done it and it was fun. And I guess there's always that thing now where I'm like, well, I hopefully I could do that again. So that's nice to know. But yeah, I, I think it's it's probably easier for me now with Gemma because I just it's like it is like returning to something that feels really familiar, which is nice.
0: Fantastic. So do you think we'll see more of Olive Groves in future?
1: I'm not sure. I don't have any plans at all. I've had lots of people ask me now and I don't know why I wasn't expecting that question, but i I was like, Oh, that's an interesting question. Nothing comes to mind at the moment, but I guess the way the story ends, it's sort of possible, but, yeah, maybe she could be in a story without being the main character. Like, that's something that I like the idea of. But, yeah, no no specific plan at the moment.
0: Sarah, you're sitting amongst a group of highly regarded female crime writers in Australia. Your first novel, The Dark Lake, won a Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction and a Davit Award for Best Debut. More and more women writers are writing crime, thrillers, suspense, and domestic noir. What is it about this genre? Do you think that attracts women writers?
1: I think they like to read it, so the the natural segue is if you've got any interest in writing, that maybe that's where you would you would start. Uh, I think women maybe just like exploring some of these topics because they they feel quite invested in them potentially, and I think for me. I mean, I I didn't really sort of set out to write crime. It was more just that that was what uh, I wrote and what ideas I sort of had. I think it's just, it just allows you to explore so many different things in one story, but it also has the nice structure and framework around it so that you can move yourself along through those issues that you're exploring. I think that's why I like it. It's flexible. Enough to give you a lot of freedom, but there is also this really sort of nice reassuring framework to fall back to because you know you've got to hit on key beats, you know you need to get to certain progress of um, a resolve by certain points. So it's not a, a clear roadmap, but there's sort of this this gentle framework around your story. So I I think it it works for my brain and my ideas, and maybe that's that's the case for other. Um, women as well but I mean yeah I agree with you like we were saying before the podcast there's so many books I read that I just put down and and I'm like oh gosh I'm so jealous that's such an amazing story and or I'm really jealous of like the structure someone's chosen or the twist yeah it's really it's a really dynamic exciting genre so I'm kind of it's really nice to be a part of it
0: yeah fantastic I understand that you're the managing director of an advertising agency and that's obviously quite a demanding career. So I wanted to ask you, how do you balance this work with your novel writing? Just
1: sort of however it can best fit really. I think it just, it depends so much on what I'm doing at any given time. I mean, the work is the constant thing. So that's pretty set. That's, you know, fairly traditional in its structure and full-time Monday to Friday. Sometimes it can seep into after hours or if there's pitches on. The industry is pretty dynamic and fast-paced so you know there is lots of pitches and lots of things that require us to be a little bit more flexible and so I guess I just try not to fight against that too much. That's kind of that. Writing does tend to fit around that but when I'm on a deadline or I have you know a contract in place I take it really seriously and it's kind of just about divvying up the the time and getting into I guess a good rhythm of progress I think I'm lucky I do write quite quickly I've kind of realized that just talking to other people once I get things clear in my head I am quite good at getting lots of words down quite quickly and I'm pretty good I think too at not laboring over that first draft too much and just kind of writing it out then I'd have to do an awful lot of editing which is definitely the part I find the most challenging. Yeah, it's really just a divide and conquer kind of a, but but with myself. So <laughs> I just try to manage my own expectations I guess and be quite specific about what I'm going to do when set little kind of goals for different weeks in my head and just make sure when I sit down and I'm and I'm going to write that I kind of know what I'm planning to get done for that particular day. Yeah, it's t- it's a time tetris game really. Some weeks uh, are a lot more sort of successful I guess than others.
0: I guess that's human nature isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Okay so I understand also that Hopscotch Productions has optioned the Dark Lake for screen which is very exciting news. Can you tell me any more about this?
1: Not really. It was incredibly exciting when it all happened and there's still a lot of movement in that space. I think the last two years have been a bit challenging with production generally. I'm working quite closely with the team from Hopscotch at the moment, looking at potentially being involved in writing the treatment for it and kind of getting it, I guess, back underway again after a bit of a pause. So it's a strange industry. I think it is not very certain and lots of things chop and change quite quickly. But yeah, hopefully at some point in the future, it would make its way into some kind of visual form. I think that would be really fun.
0: Very exciting. Okay. So what's next, Sarah? Are you working on anything else at the moment?
1: No, that's kind of it at the moment. Last year was a, was quite a lot of um, juggling between the two things. So I am giving myself a little bit of a break at the moment, just yeah, focusing on potentially the Dark Lake treatment piece. I've got lots of ideas, but nothing kind of absolute. So um, I would like to think that over the next few months, I might start putting pen to paper and and get some thoughts down so we'll see.
0: Sarah you may not know but many writers listen to this podcast and so I wondered if you might share your top three tips about writing or the publishing process.
1: I mean some of these are still, they feel so obvious but I, I read you know a lot and I don't take that advice about not reading in your genre when you're writing in your genre. Like, I I think for me, there's something about reading that just unlocks ideas and, and sort of unlocks productivity for me. It's really inspiring. Like, it's like going to an art gallery, I think, for my, you know, creative teams at work. So, the more I read, the more I want to write, the more motivated I feel to write. So, I'm always reading and I'm never sort of not reading something. I think that's really important. And I read, pretty much everything because I think that there's inspiration from every genre for every genre so it's not about I guess being sort of specific about a swim lane I think writing is really key to writing (laughs) so and I, I say that kind of ironically but I definitely fall or have fallen into the trap in the past of procrastinating by doing writing adjacent things but not actually writing so I'll do another short course or I'll read another article on writing and all of that stuff I think is great and important but it is not a replacement for actually writing and I can kind of tell when I'm starting to procrastinate because I try to pretend to like plot out my books because I think that that's productive and then I know in my heart that that is absolutely getting me no closer to actually getting a book done for me that's not a good use of my time so actually just sitting down and writing and figuring it out and getting your brain into that gear I think is just the only way for me that I actually get closer to a book being written. Probably another tip that is maybe a bit specific to writing crime but probably other genres too I'm sure is just not letting research get in the way of, again, progress because I think you can always come back and do research but if you try to do a lot of research up front unless it's an an area that you actually need to know before you can write anything, which is maybe, you know, historical fiction might be one of those things that you kind of have to do it in the right order. Mm. I think, again, it's another form of procrastination. Like I could research things that might happen in my books for years and not write anything, or I could get the story down, get it kind of loosely accurate and then go back and fix it. Mm. And I think that is actually a much more efficient way to go. So again, I think it's not not kind of making excuses to get everything perfect before you start writing. Because mm. I think if you do that, you'll never, ever start. And so if that's the, your goal is to write something, the more you can actually spend your time doing that, I think the more likely you'll end up with a book at the end.
0: Yes. I think a lot of people think that those things are obvious, but sometimes they just need to be said.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we're always our own worst enemies with anything that comes to do with time. And attention. And I mean, I think everything, like I I would say life is just a series of making decisions about what you're going to direct your attention toward. Mm. So if you decide that you want to write a book, you have to direct your attention towards writing the book. And if you spend time doing other things, that's fine. But then you have to be at peace with probably not getting to the point where you're writing the book. So I'm big on attention and what I dedicate my attention and my time to. And I think if you get, you know, don't want to get too kind of pragmatic about it, but it, it is kind of transactional. Like if you can pay attention to writing, then you will write.
0: Sarah, although The Housemate was the first of your novels I have read, it certainly won't be the last. I wish you every success with this fantastic novel. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Oh, Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.